Chapter Three of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. At Hythe, to make use of a very extraordinary though not uncommon expression, the coach stopped to sup. Not that the coach itself ate anything, for on the contrary, it disgorged that which it had already taken in. But the travellers who descended from it were furnished with supper although the distance to Folkestone might very well have justified them in going on to the end of their journey without any other pabulum than that which they had already received. But two or three things are to be taken into consideration. The distance from London to Folkestone is now seventy-one miles. It was longer in those days by several more, besides having the disadvantage of running up and down over innumerable hills, all of which were a great deal more steep than they are in the present day. The journey, which the travellers accomplished, was generally considered a feat both of difficulty and danger, and the coach which performed that feat in one day was supposed to deserve right well the name which it had assumed, the phenomenon. Before it began to run, seventy-one miles in seventeen hours was considered an impracticable journey for anything but a man on horseback, and when first the coach appeared upon the road, the townspeople and villagers turned out in multitudes, with admiration and wonder, not unmixed with dread, to see the rapid rate at which it went, very nearly six miles an hour. The old diligence which had preceded it had slept one night, and sometimes two, upon the road, and in its first vain struggles with its more rapid successor, it had actually once or twice made the journey into two and twenty hours. To beat off this pertinacious rival, the proprietor of the stage had been obliged to propitiate the innkeepers of various important towns by dividing his favours amongst them, and thus the traveller was forced to wait nearly an hour at Hythe, during which he might sup if he liked, although it was only about five miles from Folkestone. The supper-room of the inn was vacant when the two officers of dragoons entered, but the table, covered with its neat white cloth and all the preparations for a substantial meal, together with a bright fire sparkling in the grate, rendered its aspect cheerful and reviving after a long and tedious journey, such as that which had just been accomplished. Sir Edward Digby looked round well pleased, turned his back to the fire, spoke to the landlord and his maid about supper, and seemed disposed to enjoy himself during the period of his stay. He ordered, too, a pint of claret, which he was well aware was likely to be procured in great perfection upon the coast of Kent. The landlord, in consequence, conceived a high respect for him, and very much undervalued all the qualities of his companion, who, seating himself at the table, leaned his head upon his hand and fell into deep thought, without giving orders for anything. The host, with his attendant star, disappeared from the room to procure the requisites for the traveller's meal, and Sir Edward Digby immediately took advantage of their absence to say, "'Come, come, my dear Colonel, shake this off. I think all that we have lately heard should have tended to revive hope and to give comfort. During all the six years that we have been more like brothers and friends, I have never seen you so much cast down as now, when you are taking the field under the most favourable circumstances, with name, station, reputation, fortune, and with the best reason to believe those true whom you have been taught to suppose false. "'I cannot tell, Digby,' replied his companion. "'We shall hear more ere long, and doubt is always well-nigh as painful as the worst certainty. Besides, I am returning to the scenes of my early youth. 
seen stored, it is true, with many a sweet and happy memory, but full also of painful recollections. Those memories themselves are but as an inscription on a tomb, where hopes and pleasures, the bright dreams of youth, the ardent aspirations of first true love, the sweet endearments of a happy home, the treasured caresses of the best of mothers, the counsels, the kindness, the unvarying tenderness of the noblest and highest-minded of fathers, all lie buried. There may be a pleasure in visiting that tomb, but it is a melancholy one, and when I think that it was for me, that it was on my account, my father suffered persecution and wrong, till a powerful mind and a vigorous frame gave way. There is a bitterness mingled with all my remembrances of these scenes, from which I would fain clear my heart. I will do so, too, but it will require some solitary thought, some renewed familiarity with all the objects round, to take off the sharpness of the first effect. You go on to Folkestone and see that all is right there. I remain here and wait for the rest. As soon as you have ascertained that everything is prepared to act in case we are called upon, which I hope may not be the case, as I do not like the service, you may betake yourself to Harborne House, making me a report as you pass. When I have so distributed the men that we can rapidly concentrate a sufficient number upon any spot where they may be required, I will come on after you to our good old friend's dwelling. There you can see me, and let me know what is taking place. I think you had better not let him know who you really are, replied Sir Edward Digby, at least till we have seen how the land lies. I do not know. I will think of it, answered the other gentleman, whom, for the present, we shall continue to call Osborne, though the learned reader has already discovered that such was not his true name. It is evident, he continued, that old Mr. Croyland does not remember me, although I saw him frequently when he was in England for a short time, some six or seven years before he finally quitted India. However, though I feel I am much changed, it is probable that many persons will recognise me whenever I appear in the neighbourhood of Cranbrook, and he might take it ill, that he who was so good and true a friend both to my uncle and my father should be left in ignorance. Perhaps it would be better to confide in him fully and make him aware of all my views and purposes. Under the seal of confession, then, said his friend, for he is evidently a very talkative old gentleman. Did you remark how he once or twice declared he would not tell a story, that it was no business of his, and then went on to tell it directly? "'True, such was always his habit,' answered Osborne, "'and his oddities have got somewhat exaggerated during the last twelve years, "'but he's as true and faithful as ever a man was, "'and nothing would induce him to betray a secret confided in him.' "'You know best,' replied the other, "'but the entrance of the landlord, with the claret and the maid with the supper, "'broke off the conversation, and there was no opportunity of renewing it "'till it was announced that the horses were two, and the coach was ready.' The two friends then took leave of each other, both coachman and host being somewhat surprised to find that one of the travellers was about to remain behind. When, however, a portmanteau, a sword-case, and a large trunk, or mail as it was then called, had been handed out of the egregious boot, Osborne walked into the inn once more and called the landlord to him. "'I shall most likely,' he said, "'take up my quarters with you for some days, so you will be good enough to have a bedroom prepared for me.' You must also let me have a room, however small, where I can read and write and receive any persons who may come to see me, for I have a good deal of business to transact. 
"'Oh, yes, sir, I understand,' replied the host, with a knowing elevation of one eyebrow and a depression of the other. "'Quite snug and private. You shall have a room at the back of the house with two doors, so that they can come in by the one and go out through the other, and nobody know anything about it.' "'I rather suspect you mistake.' "'answered the guest with a smile, "'and for fear you should say anything under an error "'that you might be sorry for afterwards. "'Let me tell you at once that I am an officer of the dragoons, "'and that the business I speak of is merely regimental business.' "'The host's face grew amazingly blank, "'for a smuggler in a large way was, in his estimation, "'a much more valuable and important guest "'than an officer in the army, "'even had he been commander-in-chief of the forces.' "'but Osborne proceeded to relieve his mind from some of its anxieties by saying, "'You will understand that I am neither a spy nor an informer, my good friend, "'but merely come here to execute whatever orders I may receive from government as a military man. "'I tell you who I am at once, that you may, as far as possible, "'keep from my sight any of those little transactions which I am informed are constantly taking place on this coast. "'I shall not, of course, step over the line of my authority,' which is purely military, to report anything I see. But still I should not like that any man should say I was cognizant of proceedings contrary to the interests of the government. This hint, however, I doubt not, will be enough. Sir, you are a gentleman, said the host, and as a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse, I shall take care you have no annoyance. You must wait a little for your bedroom, though, for we did not know you were going to stay, but we will lose no time in getting it ready. "'Can I do anything else to serve you, sir?' "'I think not,' replied Osborne. "'But one thing will be necessary. "'I expect five horses down to-morrow, "'and there must be found stabling for them "'and accommodation for the servants.' "'The landlord, who was greatly consoled "'by these latter proofs of his guest's opulence and importance, "'was proceeding to assure him "'that all manner of conveniences, "'both for horse and man, "'were to be found at his inn, when the door of the room opened and a third person was added to the party within. The moment the eye of the traveller by the coach fell upon him, his face lighted up with a well-pleased smile, and he exclaimed, "'Ah, my good friend, is that you? I little expected to find you in this part of Kent. What brought you hither after our long voyage?' "'The same that brought you,' answered the other, "'old memories and loved associations.' "'But before we proceed to notice what was Osborne's reply, "'we must, though very unwilling to give long descriptions "'either of personal appearance or of dress, "'pause to notice briefly those of the stranger who had just entered. "'He had originally been a tall man and probably a powerful one, "'but he now stooped considerably and was extremely thin. "'His face had no colour in it, and even the lips were pale, "'but yet the hue was not cadaverous or even what could be called sickly. The features were generally small and fine, except the eyes, which were large and bright, with a sort of brilliant but unsafe fire in them, and that peculiar searching and intense gaze when speaking to anyone, which is common to people of strong imaginations, who try to convey to others more than they actually say. His forehead, too, was high and grand, but wrinkled over with the furrows of thought and care, and on the right side was a deep indentation with a gash across it, as if the skull had been driven in by a blow. His hair, which was long and thin, was milk-white, and though his teeth were fine, yet the wrinkles of his skin, the peculiar roughness of the ear, and the shriveled hand all bore testimony to an advanced age. Yet perhaps he might be younger than he looked, 
for the light in that eager eye plainly spoke one of those quick, anxious, ever-laboring spirits, which wear the frame by the internal emotions infinitely more rapidly and more destructively than any of the external events and circumstances of life. One thing was very peculiar about him, at least in this country, for on another continent such a peculiarity might have called for no attention. On either cheek, beginning just behind the external corner of the eye, and proceeding in a graceful wave all along the cheekbone, turning round like an acanthus leaf at the other extremity upon the cheek itself, was a long line of very minute blue spots, with another, and another, and another beneath it, to the whole assumed the appearance of a rather broad arabesque painted in blue upon his face. His dress in other respects, if this tattooing might be called a part of his dress, though coarse in texture, was good. The whole, too, was black, except where the white turned-down collar of his shirt appeared between the coat and his pale brownish skin. His shoes were large and heavy like those used by the countrymen in that part of the county, and in them he wore a pair of silver buckles, not very large, but which in their peculiar form and ornaments gave signs of considerable antiquity. Though bent, as we have said, thin and pale, he seemed active and energetic, all his motions were quick and eager, and he grasped the hand which Osborne extended to him, with a warmth and enthusiasm very different from the ordinary expression of common friendship. "'You mistake,' said the young gentleman, in answer to his last observation. "'It was not old memories and loved associations which brought me here at all, Mr. Ward. "'It was an order from the Commander-in-Chief. "'Had I not received it, I should not have visited this place for years, if ever.' "'Yes, yes, you would,' replied the old man. "'You could not help yourself. "'It was written in the book of your fate. "'It was not to be avoided.' You were drawn here by an irresistible impulse to undergo what you have to undergo, to perform that which is assigned to you, and to do and suffer all those things which are written on high. I wonder to hear you speaking in terms so like those of a fatalist, answered Osborne. You, whom I have always heard so strenuously assert man's responsibility for all his actions, and scoff at the idea of his excusing himself on the plea of his predestination. "'True, true,' answered the old man, whom he called Ward. "'Predestination affords him no excuse for aught that is wrong, "'for though it be an inscrutable mystery "'how those three great facts are to be reconciled, "'yet certain it is that omniscience cannot be ignorant "'of that which will take place, "'any more than that which has taken place, "'that everything which God foreknows must take place "'and has been predetermined by his will.' and that yet, as every man must feel within himself, his own actions depend upon his volition, and if they be evil, he alone is to blame. The end is to come, Osborne, the end is to come when all will be revealed, and doubt not that it will be for God's glory. I often think, he continued with a less emphatic tone, that man with his free will is like a child with a plaything. We see the babe about to dash it against the wall in mere wantonness, we know that he will injure it, perhaps break it to pieces, perhaps hurt himself with it in a degree. We could prevent it, yet we do not, thinking perhaps that it will be a lesson, one of those, the accumulation of which makes experience, if not wisdom. At all events, the punishment falls upon him, and if duly warned, he has no right to blame us for that which his own will did, though he saw what he would do, and could have prevented him from doing so. 
We are all spoilt children, Osborne, and remain so to the end, though God gives us warning enough. But here comes my homely meal. At the same moment the landlord brought in a dish of vegetables, some milk and some pottage, which he placed upon the table, giving a shrewd look to the young officer, but saying to his companion, "'There, I have brought what you ordered, sir, but I cannot help thinking you had better take a bit of meat. You had nothing but the same stuff this morning, and no dinner that I know of.' "'Man, I never eat anything that has drawn the breath of life,' replied Ward. "'The first of our race brought death into the world and was permitted to inflict it upon others,' for the satisfaction of his own appetites. But it was a permission, and not an injunction, except for sacrifice. I will not be one of the tyrants of the whole creation. I will have no more of the tiger in my nature than is inseparable from it. And as to gorging myself some five or six times a day with unnecessary food, am I a swine, do you think, to eat when I am not hungry, for the sole purpose of devouring?' "'No, no, the simplest food, and that only for necessity, "'is best for man's body and his mind. "'We all grow too rank and superfluous.' "'Thus saying, he approached the table, "'said a short grace over that which was set before him, "'and then, sitting down, ate till he was satisfied, "'without exchanging a word with any one "'during the time that he was thus engaged. "'It occupied less than five minutes, however, "'to take all that he required,' and then, starting up suddenly, he thanked God for what he had given him, took up his hat, and turned towards the door. "'I'm going out, Osborne,' he said, "'for my evening walk. Will you come with me?' "'Willingly, for half an hour,' answered the young officer, and telling the landlord as he passed that he would be back by the time that his room was ready, he accompanied his eccentric acquaintance out into the streets of Hythe, and thence through some narrow walks and lanes to the seashore. End of chapter 3